morning, everybody, and welcome to the 12th episode of the Starve the Ego, Feed the Soul podcast. I'm Nico Barraza, and we took last week off. I had PRK laser eye surgery on the Friday before last Monday, and it went pretty well. Um, my vision's still coming back, and if you ever had LASIK or PRK, you know what the deal is, um, so I won't be wearing glasses or contacts anymore, although maybe I'll get some fake glasses because I actually do really like wearing glasses once in a while. Um, but yeah, sorry we missed out last week. Uh, thank you guys for for hanging in there. And um, I'm really excited about this week's episode. But first, I want to say, if you guys love the podcast, please consider liking, subscribing, and sharing the podcast. Leaving us a written five-star review on Apple helps out a ton. Sharing the Spotify content as well. I really appreciate that because it just helps the podcast grow, helps us reach more ears. And I hope you enjoyed the the last episode that we just had. Um it came out a couple Mondays ago. I've gotten a lot of feedback on it. And I know people are really excited about uh, having Tani on and, you know, got a lot from it. So, uh, and then we also had our, our book giveaway for Dr. Caroline Leaf and we had three winners for that. So we mailed out three of, uh, three copies of her new book. And you, if you're listening and you're one of the people that won, you'll be getting those soon. And hopefully I get some photos of you guys holding the book up and then uh, throw a shout out on Instagram because Really appreciate you guys entering that. And uh, her book's awesome. Still working through it myself and finding uh, kernels of, of knowledge in there uh, throughout the way. Um, I had to, actually had to buy the audio book because I could, couldn't see for a while there and still can't read super easily. Um, but it's an incredible book. It's amazing. So today we have Holly McKay on the show. And I first came across Holly's work via the Jocko Willenick podcast. And Holly is a foreign policy expert and a war crimes investigator. She was an investigative and international affairs war journalist for Fox News Digital for over 14 years, where she focused on warfare, terrorism, and crimes against humanity. Holly has worked on the front lines of several major war zones and covered humanitarian and diplomatic crisis in Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Syria, Iran, Turkey, Yemen, Saudi Arabia, Burma, Russia, Africa, Latin America, and other areas. Um, Holly is a really intriguing individual. She's you know, been in war-torn places, uh, you know, in very isolated environments, uh, sort of in, in, well, not sort of, in very volatile environments too. She's sort of seen the best and the worst that humanity has to offer. And that's why I wanted to have her on. She's got a breadth and depth of experience and uh, some very intriguing opinions and points based on her experiences in these areas. And she's based out of the U.S., but she's from Australia. Um, and she just launched a book, uh, a newer book called Only Cry for the Living, uh, Memos from Inside the ISIS Battlefield. And I'll throw a link uh, for that book on Amazon and to her site in the show notes. Highly recommend checking that out. She's a great writer. Uh, we cover a good amount of topics in here. It's, it's a lot different than some of the guests I've had on so far. But I think you guys will really resonate with Holly's stories that she's telling because uh, they're very heartfelt and just very real. Uh, you know, even if you can't relate to the disparity, you know, that she talks about uh, to this full capacity, I'm pretty sure you can like envision that these things in your mind. I think it really helps us, you know, put our own lives in perspective and, you know, at the end of the day, just raises the need, at least in my mind, for connectivity. You know, we really have to work on connecting with ourselves, on being more vulnerable, on being more open, uh, you know, to to break through conflict. And we talk about, you know, whether conflict is inherent in humanity, will, you know, will we ever reach a time where there's not war or strife that we're creating, uh, whether for political gain or, you know, fighting for resources. Um, 
so it's just a really interesting conversation. You know, it's not so much based on, um, you know, relationships, but it is about relating, you know, it's about, you know, looking outside of your own culture, seeing others, you know, recognizing others' struggles and others' pain and, you know, practicing empathy too. I think one thing that comes across in Holly's writing is, is just her amount of empathy for the people she's been around and their experiences. And I think that's made, probably made her a better writer too, because, you know, being able to eloquently tell someone else's story in such a captivating manner, especially in, in a time like a, a war stricken, you know, time in a war stricken area. It's, I don't know, it's a, a, it takes a certain talent, right. To be able to do that. And um, just want to commend her for, for telling uh, people's stories in, in times of big crisis. Um, I want to keep reading a little bit of her bio. So you have some more background. This is just right off her website. Her globally spanned coverage in the form of thousands of print articles and essays has included exclusive and detailed interviews with numerous cap, uh, captured terrorists as well as high-ranking government, military, and intelligence officials and leaders from all sides. She has spent considerable time embedded with U.S. and foreign troops, conducted extensive interviews with survivors of torture, sex, slavery, and forced child jihadist training, refugees, and internally displaced people to communicate the complexities of such catastrophes and war crimes on local populations. Holly's columns have additionally been featured in the Wall Street Journal and her writings referenced in innumerable mainstream publications and academic journals. Additionally, she has won numerous foreign press and humanitarian awards. She is acclaimed by her peers as one of the most diligent reports in her field. Um, yeah, super sweet. I, I'm really appreciative of, of Holly coming on the show. I think you'll, uh, if you listen to the whole, the whole episode, we, we touch on various things, but it, it's really quite different than, than what you've probably heard on the podcast. And again, this, this podcast isn't just about relationships, although it, that's a you know quintessential piece of it, but it's really about looking deeper within ourselves, healing our own trauma, you know, becoming better people for those around us. And part of that is listening to stories of others and, you know, uh, especially in other places and other cultures and their struggles and their battles and how uh, perhaps our country and our culture has played a role in that and how we go about healing, you know, division across borders uh, within ourselves and, you know, any borders that we create within our mind. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. I'm glad to be back. Hopefully the eyeballs keep improving. I've been riding this new Triumph Street Triple RS street bike that I got. I have two motorcycles now. Um, absolutely in love with this bike. I've literally been riding it all day, every day when I can, you know, instead of driving the car, I'm just riding the motorcycle and then taking the car out when, when I got to get the pups out. Um, but super excited as an aside. So if you've seen a lot of motorcycle content on Instagram, sorry in advance, but sort of in love with the bike. It's so much fun. Wow. Tangent time. Um, okay. So without further ado, Holly McKay. Well, Holly, thanks so much for making the time to come on the show. You are a very intriguing guest. Cause I don't think a lot of people have your, I mean, in general, your background, but, um, you know, it's, it's, I feel like I'm, I'm been anticipating this conversation cause I'm really excited for it based on our sort of pre-briefing over the phone and your, you know, background, um, well, I'll let you get into it, but your background is, is something that, you know, uh, the majority of human beings don't have a direct experience with, I'd say, you know, um, so I'm, I'm really curious to hear more about you, but can you start off with introducing yourself and, and telling everyone a little about yourself, whether if they don't know your writing or your background and sort of how you got in to what you do? Cause it's a very niche thing. Yeah. So I grew up in Australia, uh, in North Queensland and 
Yeah, I just, I always love to write. I love to kind of tell stories. It was a fairly isolated childhood. So that was sort of my, my recourse was, was being able to write and read. And I got very heavily into to ballet at a young age. And I went away to a, like a ballet sort of training school very young um, and thought that was going to be my career in somehow in the arts, whether that was through uh, being in a company or through choreography or some sort of artistic endeavor was, was always the plan. And then I broke my ankle. So it kind of forced me to, to step back and, and go back to university and, and sort of dabble and decide what I wanted to do, which I still wasn't particularly clear about. I always had a love for, I thought of human rights law and other things that I was, was going to go into. I ended up in New York to finish my degree and just randomly ended up uh, with a in- journalism internship and that sort of sparked a sponsorship. And I, I started doing this kind of work. Uh, yeah, I think I was just, I was, wasn't even 21. So it was a, um, it was very much a baptism by fire of just being told I needed to go out there and, and find stories. And you, you studied journalism, but you, did you just, when did you publish your first book? Oh gosh, that book. Uh, I think I wrote it when I was about 12, 13 and then published it. I think I was 13 or 14 when that got published. Okay. So, I mean, you, this is like, that's it's pretty uncommon for people to publish at that age would you say i guess so you know i think i just wrote it as i said i was a really isolated upbringing uh north queensland in sort of this rainforest area which was beautiful but there was no other children around um there was a lot of you know we couldn't kind of get over the river to get to a lot of things so i really had to entertain myself and i found writing as a way to do that i never anticipated on publishing the book it was just something i, I wrote uh, sort of a young young fiction book, and then it was my my dad who who really took it and and wanted to sort of do something with it. And and looking back, I yeah, I I, I wish I'd handled it differently. But I was thirteen, but I, I was terribly embarrassed by the whole thing, and I thought, oh, this is terrible. You know, people are going to see my writing, and it's going to be it's going to be bad. And I um yeah, I, I didn't I didn't kind of embrace it the way that I I should have looking looking back on it, but. But I was a kid, so. Right. It's hard to look at our 13, 14 year old selves and be like, yeah, we should have done things differently because at the time we did it the best we could for most of the time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So how did you get into, you know, what you do now? And I don't want to sort of crack that egg open. Mm. I want want you to get into what you do because I'll probably, you know, say something that doesn't fully represent it. But, you know, for so many people that read like war correspondence Mm. or something some sort of writing from this, uh, you know, from this area of humanity, it's this like very distant mm. thing, you know, like we, like, unless you're a soldier or you're there or you're a media media covering it or you're people around or involved directly in sort of that, mm. in sort of a war or a, uh, a, um, you know, altercation, you, it's something that's sort of on the fringe of society that it's out of sight and out of mind for a lot of people in the West, right. That sort of go through daily lives you, you've sort of lived a lot of these experiences, been with so many people. Um, and I'd love for you to talk about how you got into that. It, was it just like a first assignment and you started this thing or had you been attracted to getting into it? Like, how did you get into covering what you do? I always had a, a deep attraction to it. I think I was just always fascinated by different cultures and different religions. And I was a teenager when 9-11 happened. So that obviously opened up my eyes to this whole other world that I really didn't know existed. And 
I think I just used the skills that I acquired as a, as a general assignment reporter doing a lot of investigative work in, in my early 20s, really. It just required that same uh, tenacious attitude of going after things and finding things you're interested in and building up resources and connecting with people. And, and I really just, I guess I was in my mid-20s when I did my first assignment and I just really pushed for it. It wasn't something that was ever handed to me. Nobody ever came and said, here, go and do this. It was me very much saying, I want to do this. I learned to speak, a, you know, basic uh, Arabic and, and had sort of an interest and developed a lot of contacts uh, in the Middle East region that I was chatting with frequently on you know, Facebook Messenger or whatever, and they were updating me. And then it was just a matter of being really, really pushy about it. And I think my editors... Uh, they, they believed in me because they'd sort of seen the work that I was able to do on other subjects and thought, you know, let's, let's give her a shot at this if she really wants to do it. And so it was just, it was, a, again, it was an absolute baptism by fire. I kind of went in not really knowing what to expect, but having a few contacts and, and you just, there's nothing like you have to feel your way around. You have to get a sense of the situation and you have to really trust the people that you're connected with. Uh, and the work that I do is, is very different to a lot of foreign correspondents. So most of them, especially generally in the TV realm, they're going in with large crews. They're going in sort of maybe with a lot of security. I think for me, uh, the work and, and my preferred work style is very much undercover. I think... Um, I usually just go in with a few locals. I try to blend in as much as possible. I'm not with crews and security and, and all of that. It's very, very low key. Uh, I guess I can pass for a lot of different uh, nationalities and places. So I don't, uh, depending on where I am, I don't, I don't raise too many eyebrows. And that's just my preferred method of doing it. Uh, I think some people look at that and maybe think it's crazy, but for me, it actually feels a lot more safe because I feel that I can just, uh, I'm not necessarily being red flagged as a target. So uh, that's always the, the way that I've approached it. And it's, it's been uh, something I think, you know, the, the first time I was in there and, and, uh, and it's a very chaotic situation and you're on the front lines and there's a lot of things happening. And I think I felt very calm in those situations and I felt just had I had a sense of belonging, and I thought this is what I'm supposed to be doing in this chapter of my life, and and so I went with that. I think it was very instinctual, and I just I felt while there yeah there was a lot of madness around me for me I I felt very clear, so it felt very right. That's really interesting. You felt calm in that environment. I don't know if a lot of people would feel calm. So perhaps it's just a gift or a talent that you sort of have innately, you know, cause I mean, you're, you're sort of in a very, well, not sort of, you are in a very volatile situation in, in a lot of respects. I imagine, I imagine there's calmness mm -hmm. throughout, you know, all the experiences you've written about, but for the most part, you're sort of, um, just more vulnerable. Like your life is more, more vulnerable, you know, um, you, it's always in the back of your mind, although that happens all over the world, like violence or, you know, uh, you know, you could get killed by a car. You, there's so many things, but I feel like being in a war zone is a different beast, right? Um, could you speak on like your, I guess your, was that always the case being very calm or what, like your first assignment, you know, going and have you always covered, I guess I should start with this. Have you always covered stuff in the middle East? Like since 
Middle East was the, the the place that I've spent most of my time, and it was my first foray. But definitely, you know, since then, uh, in between Middle East, I've been uh, Afghanistan, Pakistan. I've been through Burma and parts of Asia, a lot of Latin America, uh, through Africa, a lot of Central America as well, and Mexico. Um, so all different parts of the world. So definitely not just the Middle East, but the Middle East is. I don't know, there's this old saying, I think Martha Gellhorn said, you can only love one more. And I think that is usually the first place you go or the first sort of assignment for me that that will always be the Middle East. That will always be a second home to me in, in some ways. Or Baghdad will always be the place that I, yeah, I gravitate to for whatever crazy reason. It will always be my second home. Do you think it's because of the culture and the community there, or was it because it was your first assignment, a mixture of those things? It was definitely a mixture. I definitely, when you're in these really intense environments, you tend to form such close bonds with the big people around you. And I just, so we have what we call fixes. And they're locals, usually journalists or other people that kind of help you with logistics and interpreters. And I just found in, and not just in Iraq, also in other places in Afghanistan, et cetera, but I just, I formed these incredibly close bonds with my with my fixes and they just it became instant family to me. And I think when you're in such an intense environments where it really is a life or death situation and, and you're with people whose sole job it is to protect you, who who risk their lives for you and, and they're not, you know, and I'm not someone that they, they knew previously and yet they're willing to give up so much. I think it's just an incredible it's an incredible gift that they welcomed me into their life. And I've always just, I felt it to be uh, an extreme honor to be a part of that. So how does it, that's really interesting. How does that work with, with sort of someone that's a fix or your fix, your fixes like, uh, you know, cause these people are just sort of, I mean, they're taking on a ton of yes. risk, right? Yeah. As well too. And their lives are always, you know, at risk too, especially if it's found out that they're working with an American or a Western journalist. It's a huge risk that they take. And I think that's something we saw a lot in the Iraq and Afghanistan wars was sort of how vulnerable a lot of the interpreters and other people that were working for the military as well and contractors were uh, in that environment. But especially with, with journalists in there, and they're just the most, and I've had such incredible luck throughout my career of just working with some incredible human beings, but it's not always the case. There are definitely cases where journalists are sold out by their fixes. And that happened a lot with, uh, with American photographers, uh, and ISIS who unfortunately went missing or, or were killed on camera. But for me, I think you have to use your instinct and you have to trust and you have to do the best that you can to make sure that the person that you're being referred to, if you haven't worked with them before, has worked with other people that you know and is a, is a trusted person. And and that's really, yeah, it's very instinctual. You have to know what you're getting into. And I've always been very fortunate to have been surrounded by just really kind and caring, incredible people that have become a lot like family to me. That's that's amazing that, you know, folks can can do that living sort of in the middle of a war zone, taking on the extra risk of having someone, you know, that's from uh, a place that is obviously not seen in favorable, favorable eyes to, you know, um, the locals that are there sort of fighting against whatever regime that is. I, I think it's like really interesting. One of the things I really would love to chat with you about is sort of that dichotomy of war, you know, like there's like, you've probably seen some of the most beautiful acts of human sort of service and empathy um, being in that, and then some of the most horrendous. 
And I think like you have this unique ability and perspective to speak on both because you've been in that situation and not just as a soldier, Mm -hmm. you're sort of there as an observer Mm -hmm. really, you know, Um, which I think is really interesting. Absolutely. I think that's, that's what the most compelling thing about war is. I think that's why we see so many movies about war and books about war is because you really just see those two incredibly vast signs of humanity, the absolute best and the absolute worst. And, and, and yeah, it's a real gift to kind of see that and, and to experience that and, and to, to be part of that in, in so many ways. And, and what it comes down to is really, it's a life or death. It's, it's, you're, you're sort of this yogi that's holding a pose and, and waiting for something to happen. And I've just, it's, yeah, I've just met the most incredible people in that process. And you see people, I mean, you walk into a refugee camp and, and people will give you the last piece of fruit that they have, or they just, they want to give you something. They want to give you whatever they can because it's really hospitable culture. And there's a part of you that feels incredibly guilty walking into those places and, and taking anything from these people who have nothing. But at the same time, they want to give you all they have to give you. And to refuse that is also incredibly rude. So you have to kind of navigate this fine balance of, of being able to be a guest uh, to someone as well as, you know, a supporter for them. As, and it's just, yeah, it's been, a, it's been an incredibly riching uh, chapter of my life to have written a book. And, and I know that most of war is heavy and there's a lot of death and there's a lot of destruction, but you really do see just how good human beings can be and, and human beings that in you know, my own experience that, that don't know me, that have never met me. And yet they'll shelter me. They'll have me at their house uh, for days or weeks on end. They'll have a driver come, you know, 10, 10 hours across a, a minefield to, to come and collect me if they need to. And it's just an incredible, incredible reminder of the good that human beings are all capable of. Are there any specific, I love that you brought up that, those sort of anecdotes. Are there any specific stories that pop up in your head that you might share that sort of, you know, illustrates like, I would say like the, the beauty that comes out of these very sort of, you know, horrendous situations. I mean, the one that I, and this wasn't, I guess it's more just an example of, of the friendships that you forge, but, and this is who, who the book is dedicated to, but in Syria, I had this uh, amazing fixer and his family kind of welcomed me in and there was nowhere else for me to stay. And it was an incredibly volatile time that I was with them, um, including uh, at one point I, I got really bad food poisoning and I was asleep at their house and I was really sick. And the nephew, uh, the, the gas canister exploded and the nephew was killed and their little baby that was sort of standing there seven months old and, and she was blinded. And it was just this terribly traumatic thing. And I harbored a lot of guilt from it because I was the one that they were all tending to that was sick at the time. And it was just, it, it was just, it was an awful experience. And yet the way that I sort of looked at them dealing with it, where it was, well, this is, the, this was his fate. This was the life. And it made me really sad because I thought, you know, this is how their life really is. And that they grow up, with this kind of understanding that it can end at any time. And they're very accepting of that. And it's, it's, it's kind of peaceful in one way, but it's, it's terribly sad in another, but 
in any case, uh, Parishin, the, the wife of my fixer, she had two little boys and, and was pregnant with uh, her third child. And she said that, you know, if it was a, if it was a daughter that she was going to name her Holly and, yeah, so that way, and they did, and she ended up having a girl, and, and they named her Holly, and I just thought that was, I mean, that was just the the loveliest thing anyone could have ever done for me, and it just sort of shows you how appreciative they are of somebody coming into their lives, and, and I always felt very guilty about being able to go in and being able to walk out whenever I wanted to. And it's something that I have really struggled with. But to them, the fact that somebody would want to come in and, and tell their story, that was a sense of justice to them because these are people that will never see any semblance of justice uh, for what's been done to them. They'll never, they'll never get to go to an international criminal, criminal court and defend what happened. They'll never get to really see there any of the perpetrators brought to justice. And yet, just having their story told and having someone care enough to tell their story, that is a sense of justice to them. And that's why I, I saw the work as being important. And that's why I thought if I can do this work, I should do this work because um, it matters to them. And at the end of the day, that's what's most important to me. That's wonderful. I like that you bring up storytelling because especially like right now in, in the West, we have this like split between authentic mm. authentic storytelling and sort of um, storytelling to sell like a facade yeah. or something, right? And I think that one of the things I appreciate from a lot of the writings that I've read that you've produced is just sort of this authentic streamline to the people you're telling the story of, right? And I, I think like a lot of times, especially when we read things on the internet, like there's a lot of bias in them, right? Like we, we, we're, we're sort of always kind of experiences a subjective experience through our eyes. It's really hard and it takes, a, a, I think, a specific talent to be able to not only go in a situation like that, but tell a story in a way that's very authentic and representative of the people that the story is being told about mm. because they're not writing it themselves, right? And I think that, you know, I, I guess uh, as a journalist, I, I wonder like what you might think on the on the subject of like authentic storytelling be sort of what we as humans need more of because even we live in a society with social media and there's constant sort of um, immediate gratification through facade. We're selling an image, right? We're selling some sort of representation of, you know, what we think is, you know, right. Interesting to others, but there's these grave realities that we all experience, whether it be depression or loneliness or heartbreak or mm. war or death or tragedy that, you know, there's a certain, um, just heavy weight when someone tells a story with these things involved versus, you know, how awesome we right. are. Right. And I think when, when people tell stories like that, well, that's when you see people just sort of, there's just quiet, mm -hmm. you know, because it's the, the weight of those stories are so heavy that it sort of touches our soul. It, it can't just exist on the superficial level because it's so innately human to experience loss and to experience mm -hmm. grief. You know, I mean, as a journalist, do you, do you see like this sort of split in, in journalism in general, or is it just in our society has, has sort of, we're, we're very clickbait entities now where we, you know, sort of just align with whatever strokes our ego. Yeah. Um, and I think, I, I do think, think we've become very clickbait. And I think for me, it's funny. I spent majority of my, my twenties and first part of my career um, in Los Angeles. And then I moved back to New York, which is where I was initially. And so sort of living in these two places and especially in LA, I 
you know, surrounded by, you know, LA has many wonderful qualities to it. Don't get me wrong. It's, you know, I lived on the beach. It was wonderful. But you are surrounded by sort of a lot of climbing and a sense of, you know, this sort of fame and, and, and a certain superficiality that comes with the, the entertainment industry and that sort of uh, gung-ho need to succeed. And I, I always felt as if I was on the outside looking in almost at a circus. I just... I would go to these parties and things with my friend. You know, I'd go to the Oscars every year for work and other things. And I just, I never wanted to be there. And I, I felt very guilty about never wanting to be there. I remember leaving at one point. I think I, I'd gone to Iraq and I'd come back and I was at the Oscars. And I just remember sort of sitting there looking around and just, it was an out-of-body experience for me of what am I doing here and why am I here and who are these people and why do I care? And I'm, you know, and that's coming from, from someone who very much loves the arts and appreciates the, the sort of the, the artistry that goes into to films and that, and music and that kind of thing. But yeah, I left and, and went and sat in and out across the street and just thought, why am I here? Um, but I never, yeah, I always felt as if I was very much on the outside looking in at this, at this kind of world and, I think what I really loved and what, you know, became maybe a source of, of why I kept wanting to go back to these places. And even, even when I wasn't in the Middle East, when I still go, you know, I, I was just in LA a couple of weeks ago and the first people I go to see are my Syrian friends or my friends from Iraq or, you know, these different communities of people that I've, I've come to, to know and love over the years. And I think because there is this authenticity that I, I struggled to find a lot outside of my, my friendship group. And when you're with people that are just telling their story and there is no shine to it and, you know, there's no, there's no agenda to it. There's no, they aren't trying to impress you and they aren't trying to, you know, do an Instagram post about it. It's just this sort of raw authenticity that I just, I loved. And I felt very, I felt I could relate to, to the, to those women that were struggling a lot more than I could relate to, um, you know, there's the, somebody sort of walking around Santa Monica in their yoga pants and green juice. And, and I just, it was just a different experience for me. So I, I think that was a huge part of why I felt so drawn and also why even back in the United States, so many of my friendship groups, I guess, revolve around uh, different communities of, of people that have uh, come from a lot of these hardships in many ways, because I just, I crave that realness that I think is, is really challenging to find. And I, I, I experienced the same thing on a different level, sort of living in New York in a different way, but so much of the conversation, I guess, just being around money and wealth and the Hamptons house and this, and I just, it's that same sense of, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't really connect with it. And, and I miss, yeah, I'm someone who very much needs those sort of connections uh, in, in friendship. And I, I found that in a lot of the, in the communities that I was working with. So I think it's a huge part. I do think, yeah, we've become so sort of absorbed in, in this sort of clickbait world and, and the media itself is a very polarizing place where there isn't really that many avenues anymore for just simple storytelling and simple narration. And I, I think it's a real shame because there's, there's just yeah. not the money in it. And I just, I don't know what it will take or if it will ever go back to, to being a landscape that people can just kind of share and, and be real with it. But I, I just hope that, yeah, we, we can all find those people that we can be safe enough with to have that vulnerability. I agree. And I think media sort of follows the, 
kind of uh, community psyche mm -hmm. of society, you know, like, like as we sort of devolve into clickbait animals, you know, I think we go in cycles as humans. I really like that you said, you know, building authentic community or sort of the idea of realness. Right. And I, I completely resonate with that because I found in my own life, especially like, I'd say, I don't know if it has anything to do with age, just like experience and the more, you know, people of status or whatnot I've been around. Um, I feel like I, I could care less about most of those things now. And I really just, I sort of crave real people. I crave to be around and people such as yourself, people that are telling authentic stories, but, but living, you know, truthfully, and this doesn't mean these people don't make mistakes. They don't, you know, do, just, we're human. We all do that. But I think that there's some, um, sort of, uh, recognition that goes on in my mind when I'm around someone that is truly authentic, that I can tell it, they're, they're not, like you said, you know, putting on any shine or painting themselves in any way. Um, because I think it takes a lot of, uh, sort of experience with, um, I don't know, some deeply, some deep things that are very human, you know, to, to get there. I think a lot of people sort of avoid feeling. And so they sort of just act, you know, most of their lives until either the acting gets too bad and they can't handle it anymore. And they have some sort of breakdown and have to heal or they, they just never, you know, mm -hmm. realize that they've been acting. They don't really know themselves completely either. And I think that's, that's wonderful. You say that. Cause for me, like, I feel like, you know, I could be in a crowded room from people that are sort of just, um, you know, acting on the outside and can, and feel completely lonely, yeah. feel sort of completely alone. But when I'm around, you know, real connection, when I'm around people that are sort of exposing themselves, uh, so I can like really see them, um, you know, I feel the opposite of loneliness. I feel deep connection. And, uh, I had Dr. Caroline Lee, she's a neuroscientist on the show uh, a couple of days ago. And we talked about that. We talked about how you know, there's such a need for humans to, or for in our, especially in the Western culture to sort of show people who we want them to see, right. As opposed to being ourselves and connecting, you know, via our trauma or our fears or our mm -hmm. failures or whatever words you want to use. And I think that, you know, I, I personally gravitate towards those that um, are very open with their life and their mistakes and their struggles, you know? And I think for a parallel that I've made is most of these individuals have a great amount of empathy too, because of what they've been through mm. and people that might have not had to deal with the same strife might not have as much empathy because they just haven't been in those positions. And so I think that's, I mean, quite incredible. You just bring up that story of that family that's taking care of you is they have to deal with that loss of that like accident, you know, and then they're taking care of this journalist who is not from their country, who I imagine they haven't known that long. And I mean, that's a huge amount of empathy and that's a huge amount of compassion to show someone that you have no you know, personal connection to. And I think that like, that's, that's the kind of shit we need to be spreading yeah. in society more, you know, um, it, it, above sort of the selfishness, sort of very self-centered view that a lot of us in the West, you know, have taken on, which is like the look at me attitude versus the look at mm. us. Kind of I really love, there's an expression and I've never been able to find out who it can be attributed to, but uh, compassion is often the solution. And I've always taken that as being, even when I've had to go and interview really bad people, you know, um, terrorists or, or people that have committed heinous crimes, I, I try to remember that before I go in, um, you know, in knowing it's not my job to go and interrogate someone. It's not my job to stick it to the man. It's my job to go in understanding that they're coming from a place of pain as well. And 
this is their chance to tell their side of the story. Um, and so I think it, it just in life in general, you know, when people are attacking you or someone is honking their horn at you or whatever the case may be, I just think, you know, stopping and recognizing that compassion really is often the solution um, would, would sort of make communities a lot better. Would, would You know, there's, there's obviously something going on there in, in all our lives and I think uh, we tend to sort of get wrapped up in the moment or and forget that, you know, there are a lot of people who are in a lot of a lot of pain for whatever reason, and I think taking a step back would would serve us all really well. I absolutely love that. That that just rose like a an idea in my mind that sort of that's like the ultimate listening is listening with a compassionate you know um, viewpoint. And I think uh, you know you you're speaking on you know interviewing someone that's you know done heinous acts, but I'm even just thinking on it as like a a relationship thing. A lot of times when we're talking to a partner that has hurt mm-hmm. us. Um, we're listening to respond and we're listening as we're the victim and they're sort of the enemy because it, it, like, let's say they've done something, mm-hmm. right. It, whether it's a friendship or a parent or a partner, husband, wife, whatever. And I think there's some, there's a huge lesson, like a beautiful lesson to be learned in, you know, if we're listening compassionately, we're sort of seeing that this person has experienced their own set of trauma, their own childhood. And we're, we're giving them a little bit more space to operate in. And it's not necessarily like excusing someone's mm-hmm. actions if someone's done something hurtful, for instance, like, you know, someone that's, you know, murdered people or, you know, like done things like heinous acts, like you're sort of speaking of with these people. But I think it, it allows you to tell their story from a way that is, is a lot more real than just um, villainizing or, you know, yeah. painting people as monsters. Because quite honestly, like a lot of these people probably have experienced some pretty incredible trauma. And that's probably how they've gotten to be uh, who they are and what they've done. And it doesn't, you know, give anyone mm-hmm. a pass to, you know, hurt others. But I think we should be striving to sort of understand why this is happening because if we can't change it, unless we're really going to understand mm-hmm. it. Right. And yeah. You know, and I think that's a problem that we we've had, you know, especially I'll use terrorists as an example. We tend to want to paint this very black and white picture of, of the reasons why they're a terrorist and that they're just a, you know, it's pure evil and, and it's just so nuanced. And it's a shame, you know, that, that if you really want to address it and get to the right cause and, and implement a proper counterterrorism strategy, you really need to understand why it exists in the first place. And it isn't the sort of um, fundamentalist idea that, that often is thrown our way. There's, there's so many more layers behind that. Um, that we, you know, as and I say we collectively, but, but people in power really need to to take note of that because they're the ones that can make the, de- the decisions and, and and implement the strategies. And we just don't take enough time to really sit and understand what that motivation is. And that's something I really tried to do in the book was was interview as many terrorists as I could and and the wives and the child soldiers and different levels because I wanted to understand what is it that compels you to to be part of. Um, something that's so brutal. I haven't had the chance to read yet, but I'm going to read your book. I'm really, I'm really stoked on reading it. Um, I didn't have enough time to read it before yeah, I, it's a big I had this conversation <laughs> with you, but yeah. Can you share a little bit about like your takeaways from having these conversations with these individuals without sure. you know, disclosing too much? Cause I want people to go buy it and read it. I think, uh, and in my experience, uh, you know, we, we tend to sort of look here in, in media narratives as it being, um, religion being the number one driver for terrorism. And 
definitely wouldn't discount sort of that extremism, but it's only a factor. It's not the factor. There were many factors that went into play. Uh, I'll use one example of, of a, a terrorist, an ISIS guy that I had met who had killed 70 people at a mosque, seven zero. And he clearly came from a really poor family. He had been in an arranged marriage and then didn't know his wife and then met her and, and he kept saying so something wrong with her, something wrong with her. And I, I wasn't quite sure what that was, but something was wrong with her. And he tried to run away, but if he ran away, he would then be left, his family would be left to pay the dowry, which is how it works in, in those uh, Islamic uh, in the Islamic world. So he ha- couldn't go back to his family. He had really nowhere to go. He had to run away from his job and sort of ended up going back to defend the land that he originally had, which happened to be in Mosul, which is, of course, where ISIS came in. And so basically they said, well, if you want to protect your land, you know, you have to fight with us. And he uh, he felt limited by his opportunity there. Um, they cut off one of his hands. Uh, you know, he I guess he that's usually the punishment for stealing something. So he may have stolen something or he may have just been accused. And then they sort of said, well, you have to learn to shoot with your left hand. Um, and then he, you know, they kind of made him go and shoot up a mosque where he killed a lot of Shia and then tried to run away again and was sort of arrested by Kurdish authorities in the north. So he's just sort of one example of this very kind of convoluted, nuanced story where it really just comes down to survival. And I always say to people, when these terrorist groups come in and you're working in a hospital and they take over your hospital and that's your only source of income and you have a family to feed, what are you going to do? There aren't that many opportunities for you to go and get another job in another town that's not under ISIS control. So it's just a very complex, difficult situation uh, for a lot of people to kind of have been implicated. And I always say a lot of it comes down to people feeling very persecuted by their government, which I think we saw a lot of in Iraq after Saddam Hussein was taken out in the US invasion. And he was a Sunni who had been in power a long time. And then suddenly the Shia and Iraq is majority Shia for the first time in their lives suddenly were given the reins of power. And so they used then that to the other extreme of then persecuting the Sunnis, which were, were debathed and kicked out of the army and they were kind of left helpless and jobless in the streets, still with their weapons. And and then we're really surprised that they became Al-Qaeda, which then became ISIS. Uh, you know, it, it's all it's all very predictable. But yet yeah. we're so short-sighted in our policy and our decision-making. We can't look at, you know, the, go- the government that we installed that's then sort of being the harbinger uh, for these next terrorist groups and, you know, it just happens. It happens time and time again. And we continue to let it happen because we really are so short-sighted in the way we, we view a lot of the world and our own uh, footprint in a lot of the world. Mm. I, I love that. And I don't have any insight because you, you've dealt with this so much more. I have friends that, you know, are retired, uh, you know, Green Beret, Navy SEALs, and I have conversations with them. I've never been a soldier myself, but I, I think it's really interesting, especially being sort of on the civilian side of things. What sort of the stories were shared via the media, because unless you pick up and read a book like yours or someone that's actually been there, um, that has a more sort of open approach to absorbing information, we're we're sold a a specific narrative, you know, usually on, on the television or in media. And I think, you know, like what, like, how do we, you know, how do we even start as a, as a, as a human culture, you know, talking about the globe to sort of heal these things that we've created. And, and there's, there's some point, 
a piece of me that, that thinks like sort of war is innate mm. in humans. I, I sort of wish that wasn't the case, but I, I don't know. It's almost like when I look at the cyclical nature of trauma and how we, you know, respond to trauma ourselves, it's like, well, we sort of need to have reminders of, um, the, why life is so important and why respecting each other is so important. And the only thing that really reminds us of that a lot of times is like death, unfortunately, um, or like trauma. Mm -hmm. I mean, what do you think about that? Cause you, you've been around this yourself and, you know, like you're talking about policy, policy being very short-sighted and I completely agree. You know, I think that like, uh, you know, we, we go into certain areas for, you know, with certain, um, agendas, you know, think, yeah, certain agendas. I was, I was looking for the word certain agendas and, you know, I, I feel like again, with compassion at the forefront of my mind, it's like, are we really going there to heal? Are we going there to heal and help others and help sort of humanity, you know, rise or are we going there for, you know, our own benefit or some other sort of, you know, delusional power that we're trying to attain? I think it's case by case. I always, you know, and I have, I've, I think the United States is an incredible country that really does strive to do a lot of good in, in parts of the world. And, and a lot of our men and women have sacrificed a lot for that. I question a lot, you know, is the military who we, we train to defend the country, who we train to, to kill if necessary, should they be the ones doing these humanitarian missions? I guess the optics of, of sort of the soldier with the gun and the, uh, you know, the camo, is, is that really setting the right tone, um, you know, for these communities? And, and I guess if that was reversed, how would we feel about foreign militaries coming into our country? It would be a bloodbath. Um, so, you know, my question isn't necessarily, and I think the U.S. is definitely trying to do a lot of uh, really good humanitarian initiatives in these places, but they often don't succeed because of, I guess an antithesis to um, to the U.S. being there, and you know, Sada City is is one place. Uh, it's sort of the slums of Baghdad, and it became quite well known because there were so many uh, American casualties there during the after the 2003 invasion. And it was really because you know, the, and they were trying to implement. They were trying to clean up the slums. They were trying to put trash cans in the street and and water pipes. But there was a, a, a sort of a local, we called them the Mahadi army, and they were uh, a local Iraqi army, very, very violent kind of group. But they would basically kill anybody that was seen, you know, using the trash cans that the U.S. Uh, military had put out or, or using the, the taps. So, you know, how effective can you be when, you know, you aren't wanted there? And is there a better way of being able to use locals on the ground to kind of implement and structure some of these things without sort of this very in-your-face United States fo footprint. And I also just, I question it, you know, that's not really the mission for why so many men and women sign up to join the military. They're not there to hand out uh, goodie bags, you know, they're, they've got a very specific purpose. And I think that's something that we really need to to look at and there are so many you know, different ways of implementing those strategies i also think and you know it's a little bit contentious but people always say are we there for our own interests i think the u.s should be there for its own interests to a certain degree i mean you can't i mean what's the point of being somewhere unless it's a unless it's a direct national security threat uh, to the u.s which in the case of Afghanistan and Iraq, that was what it was justified to be, whether, you know, we could we could argue that for days, but that was justified as a national security threat. And so that was kind of the reason for being in there. 
I think there are so many parts of the world that are really hurting and really struggling, but does that mean the United States needs to necessarily be there? I don't think so. I think that the US can, can certainly help and support, and it does a lot um, in terms of humanitarian initiatives, but I, I do think that the US shouldn't necessarily be in places that it doesn't have a direct uh, reason to be there. Yeah, I find it's it's hard. It's a hard thing to talk about because I really believe that you know humanity. We are all sort of here to sort of help each other, right? And I think that I see beyond borders and beyond country lines because those are things we've made up. Although I have great respect for where I was born and the privileges that were given to me being born here, uh, but you know it's it's tough because I feel like you know it's not like a this country's duty to sort of you know help. We I mean we need to start helping ourselves, sure. quite frankly. But I. I think that, you know, I, um, I just feel like, you know, if the majority of the world could sort of get on the same plane where it's like, we respect each other's religion, each other's beliefs, and we can coexist and disagree and not necessarily want to maul someone we disagree with, um, that that's okay, that that's just life and that we don't have to disagree. Now, that being said, there's, there's always going to be the fringe of society where there's things that are going wrong, that think bad things are being done. And I feel like that's why you know, militaries for different countries exist for sure. But I think it would be much less so if we took, again, a more compassionate approach and were able to sort of reach out uh, with a healing mm-hmm. mentality versus a sort of instigation mentality or sort of a control mentality. You know, I think that if we look at any human relationship, anytime controls at the forefront, it usually doesn't work out long-term. No, You know, it just, something usually happens. You know, you, you have to really um, build friendship, build trust, build commitment, and to have a healthy relationship, whether it's someone you love or another country, you know? Um, and I think until we really wrap our heads around that, I mean, I think really the world needs a group therapy session, but, you know, that's what first comes to my mind. You know, I don't know if we necessarily, you know, and we'll never eradicate fighting for yeah. sure, but I think we could certainly have a lot less of it if we really listen to like why we're fighting in the first place. Yeah. And so much of it is so much of it's preventable too. And that's a sort of a thing for me as well is we focus again on a policy level. There isn't really a focus on prevention. There's no, you know, we want to jump into these things once they're already happening, but we don't, I just think there's, there isn't enough of, of, of communication and en- enough sort of dialogue that comes into these things prior to, uh, prior to it erupting. And that's why I also see journalism or storytellers really as being pivotal in, you know, a lot of these groups won't speak to each other necessarily. So it's, it's really vital sort of to have something out there in the public domain that can communicate each side's point of view. And so that's why I really believe in, in the work and, and how it's told. And I think it's sort of a real shame that, that the foreign work has been something that's slashed from a lot of the newsroom's budgets and people don't want to do the work mm. or people that just kind of want to rely on whatever comes out on Twitter instead of actually sending reporters into the field and really doing the work. Because I think there is a, a bigger implication that's being missed and that is the the communication between different sides. And there's something to be said about this, like distrust in the past four or five years from the public eye, at least in the US about the media, right? It's like, you know, I I feel like people used to really read newspapers or see an article online and be like, this is probably for the most part, you know, pretty legitimate for the the Mm -hmm. most part, I'd say. 
But then, I mean, like, what's your view on the past four years of just people just completely being like, oh, everything is fake news now. Nothing is real, essentially, unless it's my opinion. Mm. I think I think a lot of it is driven by social media and by the algorithms that yeah. sort of draw you into echo chambers of, uh, mm. of really only seeing, um, you know, other people that agree with you. And that sort of reinforces whatever bias you may have. And that becomes really difficult then for, you know, you to be open to different ideas that haven't that don't gel with the, the uh, objective that you've already come to. Um, so I think it's really, it's really polarizing on, on both sides. And I, I try to really see, see it from, you know, people who are very right and people from who are very left and try to kind of understand where they're at. Um, but, and I think in the reality in the news business is this middle ground that once, you know, existed and was really what we as sort of old school journalists strive to be. It just, it, it doesn't exist anymore. It's not monetized. Mm. It's, it's hard to, um, again, you know, that, that it's distrusted uh, in one way or another. So it's, it's a really difficult time. And I think a lot of that has really been um, propelled by, by sort of social media, to be honest with you. I think what could be a really great avenue for being able to explore so many different perspectives on something has really become kind of so polarizing and, and driving you to the content that you already are, are going to agree with in, in, into the echo chamber. And I think it's a shame because um, it's hard for people to, to be pulled out of that once they're in on, on either side. I completely agree. It's uh, it is, it is a bit scary too. I feel like because so many of us are reliant, especially during the pandemic on social media being our sort of connection to another or another person. Right. And I, it does, I mean, the science is behind it. Like the algorithms are sort of created to keep barricades around what we're exposed to. Of course, there's ways around that, but you have to really be consciously trying to sort of break the algorithm, which majority of human beings aren't. They're just sort of, you know, fed, yeah, there's you know, the a lot of laziness, let's be building. honest. <laughs> no, totally. There, there's a lot of laziness and, and that laziness is sort of, um, you know, a factor of our, our shrinking attention span where we're just like scrolling without really even consciously being present you yeah. know um and and i think but but again we're, we're not consciously absorbing a lot of the information but we're sort of subconsciously just like it's always the same stuff no matter where you fall on the political spectrum or the social spectrum or what your beliefs are and i think you know one of the most healing things that we can do as humans is to have conversations with people we disagree with not in a way to that's volatile and and it really it, you can't have a conversation with someone that doesn't want to mm. you know be wrong i think we also need to sort of be able to admit that like we could be wrong mm. each and every one of us could be wrong and i think until we can admit that we really can't have a conversation or learn right you know because if, if you think you know and you think like everything that you've read and everything that you know whether you're a very educated person and 10 phds or not like if you if your ego is sort of taking the reins and you're like well you know this the data suggests this and i'm right of course i'm right until you can really sit with yourself and be like you know i could be wrong i want to hear this person and it's not necessarily mean mean your position is going to change or your opinion is going to change, but I think our ability to connect again ac across borders that we bridge between ourselves, you know, is really at the ethos of what it means to be human. Mm. Like that's where the consciousness comes in. That's why we're sort of separate from other animals, you know. Um, and with that ability, you know, we have great power. And you know, like the ancient Spider-Man quote: "With great power, power comes great great responsibility." You know, it's like. I think we have a responsibility in our species to connect with each other 
and seek understanding versus persecution. Mm, and I, and um, I, I think of that too. I think the sort of the cancel obsession right now is is really a dangerous slippery mm, slope. You know, yeah. we're sort of the First Amendment is a really important uh, important thing in being able to express views that are divergent to to what the mainstream may think is is correct. I think is in a really important component of being an American, and I, I feel very much that we we are losing that. Um, and some of it is quite absurd. You're talking about cancel yeah, culture. Yeah. Right. And I think okay. that, that ties into not being able to listen to someone with a different a different point of view. And I think that's a it's just a dangerous slippery slope because we lose that ability to have a civil discourse that we may differ from. And I, I think that it's a it's just a dangerous precedent that sort of seems to have, have taken over again with, with social media. Let's talk about cancel culture because mm-hmm. that is a huge thing. And um, I've had sort of brief conversations on it on the show, but nothing specifically, you know, it's a tough thing to navigate because there are some folks that are spewing some pretty bad shit on the internet, you know? And I think that like, it really can be um, poison to society and the masses. That being said, like, you know, who's the judgment figure on that? Who's deciding this, right? It's, it's a, I think there's a really fine line, you know, between censorship that's legitimate and stuff that's really sort of uh, convoluting power. And, you know, I, I'd love your take on it because, you know, cancel culture, it exists in so many ways. I mean, shit, you can say like one thing on the internet these days and you can have done a great amount of work for your entire life and just be cut, you know, off from everything. And, uh, you know, it's, I just think we're, I, we're, I'm a person human that, beings, we're always going to make mistakes and we're always going to evolve yes. in our opinions. And if you don't evolve, mm-hmm. you know, uh, my opinions will evolve and what I thought about certain things a year ago or six months ago right? and certainly 10 years ago. So I just think if we're going to cut people off for a mistake that they may have made currently or in their past, you know, it's really just, it's a, it's a, it's not a nice precedent to set, I think, for, for our own trajectories because we are supposed to be continually growing. And I think when you don't mm. give people a chance to, um, I mean, what we're seeing now is people aren't even able to apologize for something. It's sort of, you apologize and you're still gone. So I just think it's, a, it's, it's concerning to me. And I, and I'm someone who very much values the idea of free speech because it doesn't exist in so many of the places that I work. You will make a Facebook right. post criticizing the government and you will end up in jail and never be seen again. And it's just, you know, and that's something that I think is such a beautiful thing of being able to come home and criticize and say whatever the hell you want about your president, your leader, your local leader, and, and know that, you know, no secret police are going to come knocking at your door to take you away. And I just, I just see it as, as this sort of um, dangerous um, slippery slope, really, and I think yeah. we, we don't realize how how good we we have it here compared to these people that right. you know living under dictatorships where they can't they can't say a word. They you know their their neighbors will tell on them. They um, they can't have dissenting opinions. They can't you know have a navigate a sort of a free conversation. And they're terrified. They're terrified to talk to me. They're terrified to to do much. And I. I just, you know, and that's a, it's a beautiful sigh of relief to come home and know that I can express my opinion on things if I need to and have a civilized, hopefully discourse with somebody about it and feel completely safe. Yeah. Let's talk about civility in this country, because I'm sure you have a lot of experience with it. I, I 
don't really uh, recall a time in my life, and I'm 31, that I've seen as much animosity between folks in this country, you know, as much division. And there's been a ton of division in this country since it was founded. But, you know, how, like, A, my main goal is like, how do we heal this? You know, I have a lot of ideas myself, um, but it really comes down, I think, to the individual. Like, we have to do the self work Mm. before we can really heal. You know, we can't heal as a community unless we heal as individuals first. And we have to want to heal as individuals and realize that, again, we could be wrong. We do have problems. We are going to make mistakes and to have that compassionate empathy for ourselves so we can give it to others. But, you know, from your perspective, like, you know, where do we move forward from this? Because there is, it just seems like this country, it it doesn't just seem, I feel like it is. It's just like so, it's so tense. Mm -hmm. Like there's so much tension, you know, uh, especially depending on what state you're in and where you're at. Yeah, I think, I really think so many, so many people are searching for meaning in their lives. So people will tend to jump onto these kind of bandwagons, whether they're, you know, extreme political bandwagons, activist bandwagons, and often perpetuate uh, situations. And I think that's, it's a need to feel meaning in their lives. It's a need to feel that they're doing something for the betterment of humanity. And so these, these things kind of come along, these movements come along and without really understanding the implications of it or the depth of it or sort of all the nuances involved in um, a particular situation, a lot of people just tend to sort of jump on and, and be part of this, this, um, movement to, I guess, feel a certain degree of, of, of being, you know, uh, of making a difference in what they view as a betterment and just being part of a community in that too. And so I think, you know, that sort of brings me to these two ideas of being, you know, people are searching for that community. They're searching for like-minded people. They're searching for sort of this group mentality um, at the same time as they are wanting to feel that their lives are worth something and that, that they can do something beyond, um, you know, their job or their family, that they want to be part of something that's bigger than themselves. So I think there's this kind of thirst. And if that can be, you know, often placed in a, you know, maybe in a more constructive way that isn't necessarily about tearing down certain people's lives or, or things or raise awareness to things without so much um, I think animosity that that may block out people that have disagreements on that. I think we'd come to a deeper understanding. Um, I just think people are deep down searching for meaning. I agree, and I know I, I exposed you to this writer, but Alain de Botton talks mm-hmm. about this in some of his work. Uh, when you know he gets a lot of questions, not only about relationships but about work and the meaning of life, right? And he, a lot of people will ask him, like, you know, how do I find um, work or career mm-hmm. that you know, I'm a going to be successful at, but B really, it's really going to sort of speak to my soul. And his answer, which I think is quite beautiful is always, you know, how have you been helped in your life? Mm. And what has, what, like who, like what gifts have you been given from someone else, you know, that you wouldn't have necessarily had, had this person not come mm. to your life, whether it's therapy or a parent or a coach or whatever it is. Right. Uh, and find ways you can give back to others in those same ways that also inspire you. You know, yeah. if you can do that, like, like sort of, you know, the, the human's goal is really to be in service of others because yeah. we're just in service of ourselves. I mean, there's been tons of scientific research on this. You die or an earlier death, you know, you have a, a shorter or, or um, a less long lifespan. You know, if you're a lonely, sort of very, you know, just alone human being and we need other people. I mean, yeah. we do. It just, we need deep connection. And right? I do think people often don't really recognize that what they're doing already has meaning. Um, and I say this because mm. I think people think, 
that in order to to be a better person or you know they have to be an aid worker in a you know a war zone or they have to be a doctor or they have to be doing something that that is you know very in your face kind of um for the betterment of the world but i think you know we all can't we all can't be doing those things and and the world only turns around because we have people doing so many different things and i think if people sort of stopped and this is what i always try to encourage in people is is recognizing the ways you already are serving the world and i think people don't really realize that you're an uber driver you're still serving the world you're serving a, a, a important yes. function you are a conversation with with human beings that may need it you're taking people from a to b often for maybe very important reasons or you're the you know you're the person who is running a nightclub or you're giving people this kind of freedom to dance and to have movement and music and all these other things so i think so much of you know people are already in service mm. in, in in so many ways and i think people don't take enough time to step back and you know journal or whatever it is to realize how they already are serving the world and that they don't necessarily need to be doing more of this or this or this and take on you know x amount of projects because what they're doing already has you know a very important purpose even if it's uh, not as you know in your faces as being a doctor in a war zone I love that. And I, and I think it's equally as important to, to know why you're doing it too, right? Because if you're, if you're only doing something for sort of the financial benefit, even if it's a repercussion that you might be helping, you know, it's just, it's not on the forefront of your mind. So you're not getting the full benefit, I think, of like what you're giving back to the community. Yeah. And I think there, there's balances, right? I, I love that you bring that up because I feel like the pandemic and COVID has sort of opened and I hope more eyes to it in my own is included when I just like look outside and I'm like, I put the trash out every Wednesday or Friday, right? And the trash magically disappears, yeah. right? And, and we don't really ever think about this in our society because it's just like, oh, the trash is always mm -hmm. gone. I put, take it out if I get up early enough and I get up and I come back after, after work or whatever, and the trash is empty, you know? And if that didn't happen, we just keep having trash pile up, which exists in plenty of places, right? And where would we put that trash? Mm -hmm. Would we just live around a bunch, you know, we have a bunch of trash around the homes we live in and what a gift it is, you know, and people will be like, well, we pay taxes for a reason and this and that. I'm like, look at the, at the same time, these people are showing up to work every day. And this person that's picking up your trash, you know, is a, uh, is serving this amazingly beautiful thing and giving you a cleaner life, giving you the ability to just kind of wake up in the morning, you know, in your sort of, uh, you know, a pajamas, walk out with your flip-flops on, put, throw your trash away and you don't have to deal with it anymore, you know? And I think that like, there's so many ways that people are serving others and it's not in the way, you yeah. know, like you just said, like being an aid worker in a, in a foreign country, but that, that could be it. Yeah. But I think it's also being really aware. And I'm just, I have this great appreciation, you know, and I feel like I've gotten more of it through COVID because of all the things that have went awry in, uh, you know, all over the world and in our economy. And I'm just like, man, every time something is done that just sort of makes my life a little bit easier or makes like, or provides me with a comfort, I try to be aware. I'm like, man, what, what a beautiful thing and what a privilege it is to be able to have people looking out for you in that way. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, yeah, we're all part of a community and I think some of us just need to realize, you know, what that role in the community is and, and, and that you're already doing the work. And I think that's also another thing we tend to feel that we need to take on a million projects or be doing A, B, C, D. And, and, and sometimes it's okay just not to be. And I think, um, you know, that's also an important lesson in, in life and in happiness too, is just, is sort of being able to just be. And that's something that I, I'm not so great at, um, which I definitely work on. But I think, 
yeah, it, it's sort of giving way to, to the need to, to, to take on the pressure of having to do so, so much and just learn that the most important thing we can give ourselves and give the people that we love is, is really time and just being. Yeah, I, I think that's something I really struggle with too, being a very type A personality is uh, the idea of contentment versus sort of motivation mm-hmm. or goals, right? And uh, I think that's something millennials specifically and younger generations really struggle with because social media has sort of given, and swipe culture has given us these ideals of like, there's always something better yeah. and greater out there. Just keep swiping. There's a better partner. Just keep looking for a better job. And not to say we shouldn't have goals. That's a wonderful thing. And the opportunity is a wonderful thing. But I think to practice being here and present is also to be able to flirt with being content mm-hmm. where you are at the time while still striving, but not letting sort of the act of striving consume you to be so focused on the future that you're not you know, appreciative of the present. Absolutely. And I think so much of our relationships, especially professionally, are often very transactional. And so, um, you know, I think it, it goes back to this idea of being able to just be a generous person or help someone out without the expectation that, you know, they're going to pay you back or they're going to do the favor two months down the road or whatever that, that may be. And I think it's something I'm very conscious of too is, is trying to avoid wherever possible this idea that everything that we, we do has to be completely transactional because I think it can be a toxic road that we walk down. Do you believe in altruism? I do. I think I've certainly met very altruistic people that are want nothing in return, I think. Um, mm. I do believe in that, Yes. Yeah, just because in my own experience, I, there's just people who are just extraordinary human beings that I often just look at and just think, you know, where did you come from? <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. I ask because I, I consider myself like a very sort of, I believed in altruism for a long time. And then I remember, um, I think I was like 20. I was, I was back from, from college for some holiday. I was going to college in San Diego and I grew up in Tucson, Arizona. And I was, uh, I've been a big climber my whole life. So I was climbing with my friend Cameron, who's uh, coincidentally a writer. He's a poet. And uh, um, he also was raised Buddhist. And we were having this conversation about altruism. And I was like, yeah, I, I, you know, I really believe in altruism. You know, like people are doing good things just for the sake of doing good things. And he's a very like even keel person. He was like, you know, it, it's probably one of the only things I don't believe in. And this is him speaking. He was like, because, you know, he gave me this example and Cameron's like a very mm-hmm. well-spoken, you know, insightful human being. He's like, you know, if you go up to a homeless person on the street and, you know, let's say you don't have any money and you give them a banana because you have a banana for lunch, you give them a banana. You know, you're doing that of the kindness of your heart. Yes. But as human beings, we're always sort of measuring. We're always sort of judging. And I'm not saying judgment in the bad way. I'm saying we're like judging our an experience. And that's how we know something's happy or sad or something's beneficial or hurtful. You know, and so if I give someone something that, you know, like a banana to feed them, uh, I'm not necessarily doing it to feel better, but I am feeling better. And in that sort of process of feeling better, it is a transaction, but it's not, it's not like the reason I'm doing it, you know? And so he was like sort of just stating that. And it kind of made me think, cause I was like, oh, that's a really interesting perspective because, you know, that's the same reason why you don't walk up to someone and just smack them mm-hmm. upside of the head, you know, for most people, because that, is going to hurt them and it's going to make you feel bad, you know? Um, and that's, you know, it, when he said that, I was like, I thought about that for like a couple of days before I had like the rest of the conversation with them, because, you know, in every time in my life, whenever I've done something for someone, it hasn't necessarily been with the idea of like wanting something back, 
but I, I am measuring, you know, I am taking bits of measurements and bits of data when I like do something nice for someone and it makes them happy. Well, I do feel better inside, you know, because I am building community or I, I do feel happier. I do feel more joy. But I think that doesn't not make altruism exist though. I think just because yeah. you feel that way, that's a human sort of instinct or whatever. It doesn't mean that altruism doesn't exist. I think that, that it's kind of to say that everyone has a, you know, that same sort of experience, I think paints it with a little bit too much of a broad brush in mm, my opinion. Right. Yeah, no. And I think I, I'd agree with you, honestly. I think that like, you know, he didn't convince me it didn't exist in, in that, but I think I hadn't really mm. thought of it that way, you know, cause, cause really before he brought that idea into my mind, I was like, well, of course I'm doing something for someone just for the sake of helping them, you know, but it also was helping myself a little bit, sure. too, you know, and, and I think being able to admit that sort of makes, um, I think it just sort of weights mm-hmm. the idea that we do need to be helping others and building community in that way authentically and, and, you know, being vulnerable in that way and being open to sharing too, you know, I mean, man, the idea of sharing our society is really just disappeared, yeah. you know, like, a, like now it's really sort of just me, you know, what can I get and not like, what can I get so I can share mm-hmm. with others? Um, you know, I think that that's, uh, I don't know, just, just sort of a thing that we've, yeah. for the most part, kind of stopped practicing. Yeah, definitely. And I think, it, you know, that's something that as humans, you will crave is that sense of, of being able to share and give. And that's something that I, you know, I, I've learned to really appreciate in war zones too, is, is the, the ability for people that have nothing to find something to give someone who's really in need of it and how communities can come together um, to, to support, you know, families or, or find money to, um, to bring back a, a Yazidi woman that's been kidnapped or, or whatever. And it's really, it is, it's a group effort. Nobody uh, can possibly exist in a, in a bubble on their own there. It's none of these people would be able to survive if it wasn't for that sort of community and group mentality. And it's, it's something that I really miss when I'm, when I'm not there. Mm. Mm, I bet. So where can people, First of all, what can people expect if they were to buy your book and read it? And then where can, where can they find it? The book is, uh, was very much a labor of love that I wrote uh, over my time covering ISIS in Iraq and Syria between 2014 and I guess the end of 2018. And it's really filled with personal stories. So it's, I really try to, I guess, explain wars to people that can feel very sanitized by statistics and numbers and feel very far away. And I really try to bring out some of those human stories and some of the micro level stories that can tell the macro picture. So the book is really filled with a lot of different uh, perspectives from the beginning to the end and really from every, every sort of player on the ground from the Iraqi army to the Kurdish army and the Syrian forces to the U.S. troops and the NATO troops uh, to the Yazidis that have been taken as sex slaves to the terrorists. Uh, I really just tried to to speak to as many different people on the ground and really just paint a vivid picture of what life was like and and bring some of those stories back. So it's made up of a series of, of memos and um, of just lives on the ground and and hopefully give people just a richer understanding of the consequences of what is war. And I feel like that's so essential, especially, you know, as a lot of folks don't have experience with it. And again, we're, we can only see the narrative sort of we're sold on whatever news channel or television we're watching. I think it's, I think it's something just like history that we need to read up on. You know, I think a lot of times history is consistently told by the perspective of sort of the conquerors, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think that like, 
we I think it, it's sort of a duty of humanity to read up on this so that it can become more real for us so that we realize what we're getting into before we get into it. Like you were talking about preemptively, like sort of preemptively educating mm-hmm. ourselves, you know? Um, I don't think there are no, so real, I mean, there are no winners in war. We, we all kind of yeah. lose. So it's just who loses the worst is probably the better way to frame right. it. And I just, I hope the book gives people a bit more of an understanding of why that is. Mm, I love that. And where can people find you, you know, if they want to see more about what you're doing and what you're writing about? Uh, mostly on Instagram or Twitter. And it's the same handle, which is H O L L I E. S-M-C-K-A-Y, or um, I put a lot of my writing on my website, which is just my name, hollymckay.com. Cool, Holly. And I'm going to link to all that stuff in the show notes. So highly recommend people going out and checking your writing. Uh, your writing. I uh, read a couple of articles you sent me. I thought they were brilliant. And I'm looking forward to reading your book and maybe we can chat yeah, again after I get through it and, and get into the details. Absolutely. That'd be great. Well, thank you so much for the time, Holly. I really appreciate you chatting. Thank you. And, um, I'm yeah, starting to look blue. Pleasure. Like, you know, when you're, I'm looking into the camera and like, I'm blue. <laughs> My eyes are going <laughs> whack. Uh, but yeah, absolutely. I'd love yeah. to hear your feedback on the book when it's done. You bet. Of course. <laughs>